I have like 50 tabs open right now and that's like an explanation for my life that's like how my brain feels a metaphor you know? for, <laughs> for a metaphor operate. I couldn't even yeah. think of the right word <laughs> no, um yeah that's I a agree. metaphor for my life it's just like a thousand tabs open um that was also me at work all day I had like 30 tabs open and I couldn't find anything that I was looking for when I needed it it's a yeah. lot no, I, I always have, <laughs> I always have like a thousand, a thousand tabs open and like a thousand tasks that I'm simultaneously working on. It's stressful, but I, I work well with organized chaos though, a little. Uh, I like to think that I do, but I don't think I actually do. Um, so as you recall, although I think by the time I met you, I had had an iPhone, but it was like an old one. But I was like super late to the iPhone game and I got, what was it, like an iPhone 5 maybe like a couple years after they came out and that was my first iPhone and I didn't know how to exit out of tabs. So (laughs) for the longest time, I just had like a thousand tabs open and I was like, I don't know what to do about this. And then someone showed me that you just like swipe Swipe. up to get rid of them. And I just had so many tabs open for so long. That oh is my so gosh. funny. That's that's kind of precious. That's oh. <laughs> I still, I'm just always behind in the iPhone. Ver- I mean, I still I have an iPhone seven now. I, I went to Goodwill and I bought an iPhone seven plus case for ninety nine cents. Guess who doesn't have an iPhone seven <laughs> plus? Me. <laughs> Did you not have your phone on you to look at the size? I did, but I just saw it and got overexcited. And after I read <laughs> iPhone 7, I stopped reading. Okay. And I was like, it's 99 cents. I didn't invest that much into it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pinkcollar underscore pod. Do you want to talk about our uh, new venture? Yeah. 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 Let me double check the script so I make sure I get the name right. Um, So you guys, whoever is out there, we are hoping to start increasing engagement with our podcast. You know, I think the goal of having a podcast has always been to reach a wider audience. Um, And so one of the best ways to do that is to have reviews. Um, I think in particular, like reviews on iTunes. I don't know if Spotify, if you're able to leave reviews. Do I don't you know? think so. I don't think so. 
so yeah, I guess we'd be specifically looking at um, reviews on on iTunes. It's just a, a helpful way for people to see, you know, that there's engagement in podcasts, people are listening, maybe what they like about the podcast. Um, so for every review that you guys leave, every written review, so I think if you agree with me, Natalie, beyond just like, oh, five stars, um, Every written review, we will donate a dollar to the National Center for Victims of Crime. So that is a nonprofit organization that advocates for victims' rights, trains professionals who work with victims, and serves as a trusted source of information on victims' issues. Um, So I think that just seems like a, a good fit for our podcast, given that we talk so much about like predators and maybe not so great people, um, we hope to give back in a way to the people who might be affected by these um, crimes. So that is yeah. that. Yeah, leave us a review, guys. We we want to donate, so make us poor, please. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to you, I was like, worst case scenario, we'll get like a thousand reviews and then we'll be like, broke not actually <laughs> but um so get to to type in friends yeah. and tell your friends and um i guess we, we might donate sorry. every i don't know if there's like 25 or 50 just in kind of an increment obviously we're not going to go and like donate a dollar after every time someone reviews but we will post it to our instagram eventually for accountability purposes Yes, for sure. Cool. So this week we are talking about stalking. That kind of rhymed. Talking, hey, about talking, stalking. stalking. Yeah, good job. Um, so we are Bachelor fans, and this has been circulating this week that Cassie Randolph, um put in or got a restraining order against Colton the baby-faced bachelor um said <laughs> that he like put a tracker on her car yes. that he was showing up at her house uninvited her parents house uninvited um and I definitely don't want to make judgments too quickly since we haven't heard like both kind both sides of the story but it does seem like Colton's behavior was very questionable and not okay but that kind of sparked the stalking bug within me and i was like we should do an episode about stalking um so i found um an article it was published in 2008 so it's a little dated but it's by sarah dr sarah g west and dr susan hatters freeman it was published in the psychiatry matrix medical communications journal the title, which is kind of funny, but also strange, is these boots are made for stalking, characteristics of female stalkers. And it's a very serious article, which is why the title confuses me. But um, so the lifetime risk for a man to become a victim of stalking is 2%. And for women, it's 8%. So it's very much more likely that a woman will be a victim of stalking than, than a man. And a landmark study published by Mullen and all. How do you say that at all when you're talking? What, at it, all? Yeah. Is it just at all? 
Yeah. I think in my head I read it and all because I'm like, oh, and all of them wrote it. Yeah, I used to. I was like, oh, this is a weird (laughs) typo when I first came across it. But then I learned. Yes. So Mullen and colleagues in 1999, they did a study based on 145 people that were identified as stalkers. Of the 145, 30 of them were women. So based on the study, it looks like women are less likely to engage in stalking. There also may be more reasons for that. You know, it correlation does not equal causation. So there may be some other factors, you know, maybe women are less likely to be identified as stalkers because, you know, they might receive treatment elsewhere or whatever. Just want to throw that out there. Um, So the five identified types of stalkers are the rejected stalker. So someone who's seeking answers after the end of a relationship, the intimacy seeking stalker so they stalk based on their desire for intimacy the incompetent stalker someone who stalks due to their lack of social skills and who feels entitled to a relationship resentful stalker one who intends to frighten their victim and the predatory stalker so someone who's stalking with the intention of sexually assaulting their victim um so the list that i went in was largest to smallest so the rejected stalker is the most common type of stalker while the predatory stalker is is least likely so fun fun fact mental health professionals may be at an increased risk of being stalked because they are called upon to treat both the victims of stalking and of of those who stalk so Psychologists and psychiatrists are at the highest risk of being stalked out of all of the mental health professionals. Um, So in order to protect yourself, if you are in this category, is to not provide any personal information, maintain appropriate boundaries, share any information about, you know, discomfort that you may experience in supervision, and report if you feel that you are in immediate danger. Isn't that great? So, in the 1980s, a new fad began taking the United States by by storm. Was it a hip fashion trend or a new political ideology? No. It was satanic, ritual abuse, moral panic. Oh my gosh. Um, And so, satanic ritual abuse, or SRA, which I'm going to like switch back and forth between what I say, um was more or less the belief that numerous reports of physical and sexual abuse were actually occurring in the context of the occult or um, satanic rituals. And so some allegations of SRA became, or sorry, once some allegations of SRA became known, a moral panic quickly took over and affected people like lawyers, social workers, therapists, etc. These were people who often handled cases of child physical and sexual abuse. And so as the moral panic around satanic ritual abuse took over, um, many people in these professions like began just making connections to different aspects of the cases that they were dealing with, um, to like different aspects of 
what was supposedly known about satanic ritual abuse. And so eventually these connections devolved into the belief that the cases of SRA were part of a larger, more sinister conspiracies, some of which um, theorized that the government or other influential figures had a hand in covering up some of these cases or that there was just like a larger plot to... I don't know, abuse everybody through satanic rituals. Um, And so uh, to be clear, from what I can tell and from what I read, official investigations of widespread (laughs) satanic ritual abuse conspiracies have found that there is no evidence to support any of these satanic ritual abuse claims. I just want to put that out there. Well, that's exactly what the satanic abusive people would say if they if. We oh, started gosh. to suspect. That's I'm literally kidding. that's I'm literally kidding. how this case devolves. But yeah, no, as far as I can tell, it's not a thing. Like, all right, anyway. Um, and so one person who was affected by SRA moral panic was Diana Napolis. Um, and so in the 1990s, Diana had nearly a decade of experience as a child protection worker. In this capacity, Diana, of course, dealt with cases of child abuse. Um, Despite scholars and law enforcement experts emphatically rejecting that there was any phenomenon of satanic ritual abuse, Diana was convinced that SRA was real, and she swore that anyone who said otherwise must be child abusers themselves, um, and they were just trying to conceal their own illegal and immoral actions. Um, So slippery slope there um and so as the age of the internet was beginning to take shape diana began posting online using various pseudonyms including one that was seems to be popular that she went by which was curio so spelled c-u-r-i-o Uh, Basically, Diana was harassing people that she believed were child abusers, part of the SRA conspiracy, or those that she believed were complicit um, by trying to cover up the truth about SRA. And so Diana targeted several people, um, including Carol Hopkins, Michael Aquino, and Elizabeth Loftus. And so these, Elizabeth Loftus is kind of known if you are into psychology, um, but more or less, these were not celebrities at at this time. Um, And so uh, Carol Hopkins was actually a school administrator who was critical of of social workers who removed children from their family's home without like probable cause and then Michael Aquino was a lieutenant colonel in the army and he was actually a member of of something called the temple of set of set temple of set which um was actually an occult religious movement and so I don't know maybe he was connected to some of this satanic ritual abuse but from what I can tell all of like the things that were he was alleged to have done were um deemed like completely improbable because of timelines and all sorts of other things. Um, And then there was Elizabeth Loftus. And so she is a cognitive psychologist who studies memory and its fallibility, including how wording of questions may lead people such as young children to making false allegations of abuse. And so um, personally, if you went to my high school, we all know like Loftus. Um, Loftus and Palmer was like a huge study that we all had to recreate and I don't know if you remember it was basically like you'd show people a video of like a car accident 
And then you would ask, like, how fast was the red car growing? Or um, how slow was the blue car moving? And sometimes there wouldn't even be a red car or a blue car. Or using, like, the words how fast made people, um, like, change their perception or yeah right higher yeah right higher miles per hour versus if you said how slow was the car moving um i hadn't heard of that but that's really interesting i think in general i've heard of kind of that phenomenon of or i i guess what it's trying to show is that witness statements may not always be 100 percent accurate so basically the way you ask a question can lead people can influence how people answer the question um and so obviously because of the different um i guess because of the different questions that people had for like the sra conspiracy theories like one of the main things um was well these could just be false allegations and so because her research was kind of used to kind of um dispel some of the things that diana believed she really really targeted elizabeth loftus to the point that she was posting things about elizabeth loftus being complicit in some of these child sexual abuse things um and Basically, these claims, all of the claims that she was making about these people were often believed by other SRA conspiracy theorists, um, and they carried on the harassment. And so I read that, like, after giving, like, a speech in, like, New Zealand, um, Elizabeth Loftus was, like, accosted by, like, dozens of people who were quoting, like, direct quotes from Diana's, like, harassing statements online to her, um, who just really believed in what this anonymous internet person was saying about this researcher. Um, And so Diana's harassment was so relentless that her actions actually resulted in the first ever California state lawsuit that tried to make internet service providers responsible for the posts of users. So if you're if you're essentially allowing these people to post anything, then this company should be responsible. I don't think it worked. Um, But um, still, for over five years, Diana's identity remained mostly a secret because she was posting from all of these different fake accounts. But in 2000, a private researcher named Michelle Devereaux, with the help of the San Diego State University Police, were actually able to track her down, and they made her identity public. And so once her identity became public, um, a lot of the people that she was targeting, um, like Carol Hopkins and Elizabeth Loftus, they didn't, they felt like she maybe wasn't as much of a threat because before it was like this anonymous person that they don't know. And now they see, okay, it's just one woman. Maybe it's going to be a little bit easier to dispel some of these rumors. Um, and so once her identity became public and these people that she was targeting didn't feel like she was that much of a threat, um, eventually Diana actually turned her attention to more prolific and notable figures. Uh, So in 2001, Diana began making harassing phone calls to Steven Spielberg. Uh, She was convinced that Steven Spielberg and his wife, Kate Capshaw, uh, were members of a satanic cult. And so random side note, as I was looking up, Steven Spielberg and his wife. She's apparently the mom of Jessica Capshaw, who plays Arizona Robbins on Grey's Anatomy. And so it's like small no world. Way. How cool. Wow. Arizona's stepdad is Steven Spielberg. Good for her. <laughs> um, 
And so Diana basically claimed that Stephen and Kate um, were operating a cult out of their basement and that they had somehow remotely implanted a microchip into Diana's brain. And so Diana called the microchip soul catcher. So presumably it was meant to catch one's soul or something. I'm not sure. But um, anyway, Steven Spielberg was like WTF. Um, And he responded, quote, to state the obvious, I am not involved with any form of manipulating Miss Napolis's mind or body through remote technology or otherwise, Um, which is kind of a funny statement that you even had to make. But yeah, it's interesting that he even addressed it at all. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was like the early... 2000s and so i have a feeling that this was like the first time for celebrities that they were becoming not just like so accessible but like news about them was becoming Mm -hmm. so like widely accessible to other people and so i think like back in the 70s somebody could be like oh yeah that guy he implanted a microchip but it's one person saying it whereas Mm -hmm. somebody putting it on the internet like people run with it a lot quicker um And so Stephen and his security team uh, believe that Diana may have been suffering from some sort of delusion and were understandably worried about his safety and the safety of his family. A judge felt that that the threat Diana posed was credible and actually ordered that she stay um, at least 150 meters away from Steven Spielberg and his family. Unfortunately, Steven Spielberg was not the last celebrity that Diana had set her sights on. A year later, at the 2002 Grammys, Diana aggressively confronted one of America's beloved sweethearts, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, what, like Steven Spielberg, Jana, like Steven Spielberg, Diana was convinced that Jennifer Love Hewitt was part of some cult that specifically targeted her with some sort of mind control technology. Um, and so the day the day after the Grammy, so the day after she had already confronted Jennifer, uh, she even pretended to be one of Jennifer Love Hewitt's friends to gain access to a movie premiere. Uh, the movie was The Tuxedo to get close to Jennifer to again confront her. Um, and so the next month, Diana again tried to confront Jennifer Love Hewitt while she was on the set of a movie. Uh, and then she followed that up with by sending Jennifer a co- by accosting Jennifer with death threats and other conspiracy mm-hmm. accusations via email. During that time, Diana was also making phone, email, and physical contact with people in Jennifer Love's Hewitt, Hewitt's life. So her friends, her family, um, and basically was just showing up at different places and trying to gain access to Jennifer Love Hewitt. In December 2002, uh, Diana was finally arrested for stalking and for the death threats that she made against Jennifer Love Hewitt. Um, She was charged with six felonies and held in the San Diego Diego County Jail on $500,000 bail. And so even though she seems to pose a credible threat, I still have an issue with cash bonds and a bond of $500,000 because... We are still innocent until proven guilty, and most people cannot afford cash bonds, but Uh whatever. Um, And so during the trial, Diana admitted that on one occasion when she was actually trying to confront Jennifer Love Hewitt, um, Jennifer's mom intervened, and she physically assaulted um, the actress's mom. And so... (laughs) 
Yeah. And so in 2003, sorry, in 2003, Diana was committed to a state hospital for three years or until she was deemed fit to stand trial. And so before any sentencing, she spent almost six months in jail and another five months in a state psychiatric facility. While she was in that psychiatric facility, um, I guess experts or whoever was treating her deemed Diana to be delusional, but they still felt that she was fit to stand trial. And so in September of 2003, Diana's case went to trial and she pled guilty to she opted to plead guilty to stalking. She ended up being sentenced to five years of probation and mandatory counseling. Um, She was also required to take her prescription medication. She had to surrender any guns or weapons that she had, and she was mandated to abstain from using a computer or any illicit drugs or alcohol. Um, And lastly, as part of her sentencing, she was ordered to stay away from both Steven Spielberg and Jennifer Love Hewitt for 10 years. Um, I have a lot of thoughts about like the sentencing. I have a lot of thoughts about mandatory counseling in general. I don't know how effective mandatory counseling is. I don't know how effective it's not. I haven't really looked at the details, but I always feel like when it comes to getting mental health care that it's a lot easier when the person is willing and it's not mandated. I think especially if somebody is dealing with delusions um, or are not fully themselves, it's hard for them to be open to the Mm -hmm. treatment. And I think it can sometimes help reinforce whatever delusions that they might have. Um, But I also just thought it was very interesting um, that back in 2003, we thought it was possible for people to (laughs) abstain from using a computer. And like now our lives, like there's no way to not use a computer, I feel. Right. Um, I was thinking that you basically need a computer for to apply for any job even if it's not a job that relies on a computer you know even to apply to like work retail or your work phone is effectively a computer your tv all oh, right yeah is now effectively a smartphone because i mean she was sentenced in 2013 and so she wasn't allowed to do this stuff for at least 10 years and so sorry 2003 and so she was allowed to do this stuff for at least 10 years and so surely by like 2008 like her like it's very hard to not use also yeah how would they really police that i I just don't think that they would have that just seems Mm -hmm. unusual um but yeah i i agree with what you're saying with mandated clients i think it's certainly a different experience going in and the the goals that you might set with your client might look a little bit different but it's also it's a really complex situation like you were saying when someone's experiencing delusions of obviously (laughs) they may have difficulties with trusting their their provider their counselor um or psychiatrist psychologist that's just really tough and as i was hearing your story i just i felt really bad it sounds like she was just a really sick person or that she really just needed some care but obviously the um, symptoms that come along with your illness or disease are what's preventing you from getting care in the first place so you're kind of in this warped cycle 
which is very sad. I'm glad you know that no one was seriously harmed. Um, But it just, it's a tough situation for for everyone involved, including the the quote-unquote stalker. Yeah, and I mean, you also just thinking, I think sometimes when it is celebrities often... I don't know. Sometimes I think we give celebrities a little too much empathy, but then I think sometimes we don't give them enough. And this is like one of those things where it's like this person is literally just doing their job and their job just so happens to be in the public eye. And so I'm just thinking as like a regular person, what somebody showing up, you know, harassing me death threats could do to me personally um and so just thinking like as a celebrity who your your job is to be in the public eye and not knowing like who this person is are they working with other people and what that could possibly do to um someone else's or you know for instance jennifer love hewitt or steven spielberg and his family's you know mental health or sense of safety and so it's sad for everybody involved and i do i I didn't look up to see if there's any information about um her whereabouts now or anything but i do hope that diana is doing well and i hope that hope she got the care she needed yeah, and I hope that the victims, um, I guess in this case, also were able to, you know, kind of get, if they needed help, get any help for um, any anxiety or anything that they may have felt as a result of this um, and are doing well now. Now I can do my story. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Uh, I was just like on a roll before. Um, so my case. So Alec Baldwin from 30 Rock um, and other things probably, but I know him best from 30 Rock. He's also kind of a controversial celebrity himself, but this is not going into his many controversies. Um, Alec Baldwin was asked by his friend, producer of Scarface, Martin Bregman, to have dinner with French-Canadian actress Genevieve Sabourin. Martin had been in a relationship with Genevieve, but he was trying to get out of it. Genevieve was his publicist slash, slash mistress, although he would deny the latter. He figured if he was able to get her a job, that Genevieve would move on. So Genevieve was known for her roles in Swindle, The Adventures of Pluto Nash, and Eternal, 30 movies I have never heard of. Um, her IMBD page lists two trivia facts. One, she was trained in the American Theater School by John Strasberg and Warren Robertson, two prestigious acting coaches. And two, on Thursday, November 14th, 2003, Genevieve was found guilty of stalking Alec Baldwin, uh, of stalking, attempted aggravated assault, harassment, and contempt of court. So, not the best facts you would want. I mean, one of them's pretty good, but the other one, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like I said, Alec and Genevieve went out to dinner And after the dinner, um, Alex said he and Genevieve talked on the phone a few times, exchanged emails for about a month. Genevieve told a much different story. 
So Genevieve said Alec took her out a few days after Valentine's Day in 2011, and the date was a romantic ride across Central Park. They went to a play, they went to dinner at Elio's, which is a super fancy Italian restaurant in the Upper East Side of New York City. It must be fancy because on TripAdvisor, it has four dollar signs is how expensive it is. I didn't know that restaurants went above $3 signs for how expensive they are. So, pretty fancy place. Um, so, Genevieve claimed that Alec promised her that she would have the night of her life. After dinner, she said that she and Alec took a cab to the Lowell Hotel. From there, they went up to her room and shared a passionate kiss. Genevieve knew that they were compatible, and soon they were making love she said they cuddled, um, and during, during the morning after, Alec made all kinds of promises to her, including that he would make her omelets every day, because omelets were Genevieve's favorite food. No offense to Genevieve, but I feel like omelets are, like, no one's favorite food ever. Like, what? <laughs> Eggs. Yum, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I don't get it. Favorite foods are, like... Pizza, chocolate, cookies, omelets? <laughs> Maybe she had like a fond memory of omelets as a child or something. I you suppose. Know. And she's French Canadian. So maybe omelette, you know, like maybe it's a... <laughs> I just thought that... Solid. <laughs> that was a strange. And have you ever tried to make an omelet? Because I have like four times and it always turns out horrible. <laughs> like yes, it's just scrambled eggs. I personally don't like omelets, but... <laughs> I like them, but they're not my favorite food. Yeah. Anyway. Um, after that fateful night, Alec and Genevieve had a falling out. Alec didn't keep any of the promises he made to Genevieve. He did make her a single omelet, and that made Genevieve very upset. She started to reach out to Alec in an attempt to get some closure. She sent a few emails, left a few voicemails, but after getting no response, Genevieve accepted the fact that she'd been ghosted and moved on. Not. She didn't do that. So, instead... <laughs> did I get you? Yes. Okay. I was like, okay, okay. <laughs> um... Instead, her increasingly threatening voicemails and emails, um, in those emails, Genevieve acted as if the pair had been lovers and would beg Alec to marry her. She would sometimes leave 30 voicemails in a night where she would be hysterically sobbing or giggling and describing what they were going to do together, kind of like an imagination of what their life was going to look like, um... So, she even talked about bringing a mini Baldwin into the world. In spring of 2012, the day that Alec got engaged to a woman named Hilariah Thompson, Genevieve showed up at his house. Alec warned Hilariah to stay away from the door, warning or er, worried that Genevieve might have a weapon. Um, so, she also would later show up at his home in Long Island and his home in Greenwich Village, which, were you aware that Greenwich Village is spelled Greenwich Village? Yes, I did, and I think it's stupid. I think that's because I have never 
seen and heard it read at the same time. So when I was reading through, I was like, Greenwich Village. And I was like about to just pronounce it like that. But then I had a sneaking suspicion that that wasn't how you pronounce it. And I had to go look it up. It's kind of like Worcestershire versus Worcestershire or whatever. Yeah, there's a town in Massachusetts. It's spelled like Worcestershire. I think it's spelled like Worcestershire. Um, but it's pronounced, okay, it's W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R. It's pronounced Worcester. Worcester. Yeah. But it looks like Worcester. Or Worcester. very dumb. Anyway, (laughs) spell things how they're supposed to sound. Or sound, make them. Phonetically. Phonetically, please. (laughs) Let's just do it so it makes sense to everyone. Okay. Um... So, Greenwich, um, she, Genevieve, uh, also threatened that she would get him and that she knew where Alec lived, where his daughter lived. Also, she threatened to go to his fiance's yoga class. Fiance was a yoga teacher. Um, so Genevieve showed up when Alec was speaking at the Lincoln Film Center after a film and sat in the front row. A few days later, when Genevieve showed up to his apartment building and asked for him, Hillary called the police and Genevieve was arrested. So, all of the reports of the court hearing tell the story of a highly dramatic proceeding um, that took place in the criminal court in Manhattan. Before the trial began, Genevieve rejected a plea deal that would have allowed her to avoid any jail time. As long as Genevieve agreed not to go near Alec or his family and attended counseling, which it sounds like she really needed, then she would not have to spend any time in prison. But Genevieve chose to take this case to trial. While he was testifying, Alex stressed that Genevieve was dangerous and delusional. He wiped away tears as he talked about Genevieve showing up at his home and how he feared for his fiance, now wife, safety. He denied having any sexual relationship with Genevieve and stressed that he went to dinner only as a favor to his friend claiming that Genevieve was his friend's mistress. Martin Bregman, the guy in question, told the Daily News after the first day of the trial, he's lying. He was screwing two women. One of them is his present wife, and the other, I presume, he was doing was the girl in question. Martin also laughed at the idea that he was having an affair, saying that he was 87 years old, and it was ridiculous to imagine that someone his age would get involved with such a younger woman. To which I say, hasn't really stopped anyone before. So, jury is out on what exactly the situation was there. Um, but, again, Alec continued to deny that he had ever slept with Genevieve. And when he said that in the court, she jumped up out of her seat and said, You're lying. Genevieve said that Alex had a scar in a private area. And that, you know, he's got to show the scar. It's the only way I can prove a sexual relationship. Another source said the scar was located on his hip, which, honey, we all have scars on our hips. They are called stretch marks. So I don't (laughs) think that that's like an identifying thing there, but just my two cents. Um, And perhaps Genevieve was calling his bluff, knowing it wasn't likely that Alex was going to drop his pants in the courtroom. Um, This reminded me, I think... I was trying to remember what it was, but I want to say it's Kimmy Schmidt where the the reverend character is saying that him and 
wait, is it Kimmy Schmidt? There was some TV show where someone was like, oh, they have a mole on their butt. And that's like, we're lovers because I know there's a mole. And then the other character like literally pulled their pants down in court and they were like, see, no mole. And the other person was like, well, I didn't think you were actually going to pull down your pants. Was that Kimmy Schmidt? Maybe. I don't remember. It's been a while. <laughs> it sounds like but a it sounds Schmidt like... thing. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, I feel like. I feel like it was Kimmy Schmidt. But anyway, Let's that was like. That. It was Kimmy Schmidt, guys. We've decided. It was in an ATV show at some period of time, or maybe a, just a very vivid dream of mine, that there was some situation um, where someone said they had a mole on their butt and they pulled down their pants in court and they were like, I don't and then that so obviously that wasn't gonna happen in real life because people just don't go pulling their pants down in court I hope um but Genevieve blamed Hillariah for calling the police and she was just saying you know Alex upset that or you're upset that I'm Alex's Alex how would one say that Alec Baldwin's ex-lover Alec there we go (laughs) Um, so Genevieve's lawyer, Todd Spodek, made the argument that Genevieve was simply looking for closure in this relationship, um, which is, like, a side interjection that has nothing to do with really, like, stalking, because obviously there are some delusions that are present there, but, like, what are your opinions on closure in a relationship or, like, that you would owe any former romantic person closure Okay, so I think this, I think I might be taking this from, like, Dan Savage or something, but, like, if some, like, closure, all the, all the closure that you need is that the relationship is over, in my opinion. Yes. Like, I get wanting answers, and I understand how difficult it can be um, to, like, leave a relationship or to have, like, the rug pulled out from under you and not fully understand, but in my opinion, like, if that person's not readily giving you those answers, you've gotten the answer that you need. Right. I also subscribe to the fact that no answer will ever be good enough for closure. Um, And it's a lot easier speaking on the outside of like not being presently in that situation. But they just kept bringing up closure so much in this. And now I feel like ghosting is a more common phenomenon. So maybe we've all become a little bit more comfortable with, you know, not necessarily knowing why something has come to an end um yeah but just just i was having some thoughts and doing some thinking um obviously i love it when you think my unprofessional (laughs) opinion there um so just a few quotes i have to share from hill from uh not hillary the other one genevieve's i'm getting names mixed up you're doing it too maybe it's just in there today um but so genevieve wrote in one of her emails on february 28th 2012 wouldn't you be happy sharing your life with a woman and not a child because hillariah was younger she was 29 when she got engaged and i believe genevieve was 41 at the time how do you pronounce her name H-I-L-A-R-I-A. Hilaria? I think that's closer. (laughs) I don't even know what I was saying before. I would say Hilaria, but, or Hilary. Yeah, now I don't know. I just want to say Hillary, but that's not it. Um, 
It's a pretty name on paper, though. I don't know how to pronounce it. Bear with me, people. Um, Send me a voice memo of how to actually pronounce it. Is this Haley Baldwin's (laughs) parents? Is this Haley Bieber's parents? I don't think so. I think Haley Bieber is Alec Baldwin's niece. Oh, there's so many of the Baldwins. I know. they're They're a famous family. But anyway, um, so another email where Genevieve was reacting to Baldwin's engagement in April 2012. The announcement of your engagement is too painful for me and so destructive. I just died in a soft way to kill myself and my life completely. So it would be nice. So it would be tolerable to breathe again. I'll never be this candid little smiling, giving nice, naive and caring blonde girl next door she died on the stepping stone of your front house and then a few few days later she threatened to confront baldwin saying i will use my very good contact in nbc universal to be inside i will get to you not to hurt you or to harm you in any way but to simply straighten your bleep out because you have humiliated me for the last time i'm coming um so not not so great and i think just the manner that she was kind of typing in shows that mentally she was maybe not quite all there um or you know was just struggling maybe having some delusions of what was was actually going on um So during his cross-examination, Alec did share some communications from the two from late 2011, early 2012 that appeared to be friendly. Alec said these communications were his attempt at being nice to Genevieve and trying to hint at her to stop reaching out to him. And he later put it more bluntly, saying, please stop contacting me. Or um, maybe he didn't even say please. I don't know. But basically, her lawyer was trying to make it seem, was trying to present it from the side of, oh, they were lovers and he just, you know, disappeared out of nowhere. So she deserves an explanation. And it doesn't really appear that that was the case. But at one point in the trial, Alex suggested Genevieve may be struggling with substance abuse. And Genevieve jumped out of her chair, exclaiming, he's vilifying me to the press. Her outbursts were so frequent and severe that Judge Robert M. Mandelbaum threatened to have her removed from court. Genevieve Zelloyer also tried to make the argument that it was inappropriate for the Baldwins to call the police, saying that the reason he had her arrested was so that he could avoid having an uncomfortable discussion about his personal relationship with her. He so eloquently said, Mr. Baldwin does not have the carte blanche to use the criminal justice system to sort out his relationship. Did you like my three and a half years of French? Carte blanche. Is it, is it not blanche? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> no, I think you're right. Well, at least I didn't say carte blanche. <laughs> carte blanche. Good job. That I, they teach the pronunciation of that in your fourth year, so I didn't quite make it there. Um, okay. No, gotcha. I don't know. I, I was so I thought I was gonna pronounce it right. I got so excited and did come out right. Okay. Sorry. Um. So Alec was very confident while he was on the stand, um, and while he was being examined by Genevieve's lawyer, he 
made comments saying like i know you're nervous apparently todd spodek was like younger he might have been kind of a newer lawyer but that didn't phase alec baldwin he was he knew how to put on a good show so even though he seemed confident in his testimony it didn't seem like he was trying to get any extra attention from the press he just wanted to get this trial over with so him and his family could move on Genevieve, however, seemed to love the attention she was receiving from the press and would have to be dragged into the courtroom by her lawyers. But like I said earlier, on Thursday, November 14th, 2003, Genevieve was found guilty of stalking, attempted aggravated assault, harassment, and contempt of court. I believe she had to spend six months in prison I read that somewhere, and then out of my, like, eight sources I had opened up, I couldn't find exactly where I read it, so, um, I hope that's right. But either way, she was sentenced, and that is the case of Genevieve Sabourdi and Alec Baldwin. Alright, <clears throat> Genevieve. Yep, yeah, she was... You know, it don't, I don't like, obviously I think for both of us being in the mental health field that we don't like to be too judgmental of people's experiences and especially when it's pretty clear that someone is really struggling. Um, you know, I don't like to make fun of people who are in that situation or, you know, definitely wouldn't want to discourage anyone from seeking out treatment if they were having thoughts like that. But it's also not great when someone kind of crosses the line and starts causing harm to others. Um, I think that's yeah. where, you know, it gets a little bit iffy. So, yeah, I think I think sometimes too often, like in an attempt to be super like conscious about people's mental health and how it affects um everyone differently um or how different things can affect people differently sometimes we're all sometimes the narrative is oh well they're suffering with something but i like kind of i don't want to give anyone a carte blanche (laughs) (laughs) but wait have you heard of that phrase before Yes. Um, I haven't. Yeah. I'm so uncultured. Anyway. Also, it's a, like blush is a word that we use in my language. So, well, I like know. my mom would refer to you as a femme blush. For white lady. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, do you, um, do you like speak pretty much French or is it just like kind of a uh, dialect of French? Je parle un peu de français, mais j'ai compris plus parce que ma mère m'appelle sur du Haiti. Ooh. Uh, <laughs> no, I uh, have a really good accent. I speak a little. I speak a little bit of French, but I understand it better. Um, Creole is like a dial. Like it's it's a pidgin language, so it's okay. a mix of French and has some other influences. But yeah, what I was trying to say is, um, I think two things can be true at the same time. You can be in distress and suffering and dealing with some sort of um like mental health like issue it can also be brought on by someone like in this case like you know like almost being triggered in a way or like being like pushed towards the edge and then Mm -hmm. you have this reaction but at the same time just because you're in distress like you can also be acting maliciously intentionally Mm -hmm. like and so i think that's kind of the case for um 
in a way both of ours and Mm -hmm. uh, you know like it's unfortunate I don't want to make fun of anybody like it's very easy to be like oh my god somebody acting a little cuckoo but um, I do think like in an effort to like push kind of like responsibility for our own mental health and things Mm -hmm. like that um, it is important to acknowledge that yeah you can suffer and you can cause suffering and both are not okay right right also people who struggle with mental illness or suffer from mental illness are more likely to be victims of crime i think there's often a misconception that they're more likely to be perpetrators but it actually increases your risk so um overall i think that there the message is that we should be providing more adequate care for people and encouraging people to seek treatment if needed and to destigmatize treatment so yeah i think stalking is probably an actually really tough one because it must if you're in that role or you're having maybe these obsessive thoughts i can't imagine that it would be easy to talk to someone about that without the with the fear of being judged um, without the fear of being judged i'm sure that that exists in there um but i think it's just important to you know be aware of your actions and and your thoughts and if you feel that something is you know off something's causing you to stress or um notice that your actions might be causing distress to others that treatment is always an option and there's you know hopefully a way to to intervene before things get too far out of your control there's also another kind of side of things i actually read a thread on twitter um recently that I thought was really interesting and put things in a perspective that I hadn't considered even though I do try to be very like conscious of these things um somebody was actually talking about their obsessive compulsive disorder um and not to say that stalking is like oh obsessive compulsive disorder but there could be some level of obsession like there right Mm -hmm. um and how with them and their like this person was just describing how for them even though like they're the thoughts that they're having are i forgot the word they're like they're counter to one's like true self like i know that hurting someone is wrong i know that stalking someone is wrong and yet intrusive here in my yeah but and here in my mind yeah exactly contradicting like your true self or whatever um and so here in my mind i'm like thinking but i want to stab this person that i love i want to stab this person that i love and the shame of that thought because here's part of you that knows that that's wrong but that thought isn't going away makes like people feel like they need to suppress that Mm -hmm. and so i think it is also possible in the case of like some stalking when there is like an aspect of like obsession there um that there could be like these two competing thoughts within somebody um And it's like, we know that it's wrong. And you know that if you go to somebody and you're like, hey, I really want to follow this person across this country and like show up at their home and like do all of these things, they're Mm going to be like, whoa, you're crazy. And like really further stigmatize it. And so Mm -hmm. I think that that's one of those aspects that like causes people not to speak up. And so all of that to say, guys, it's okay to ask for help. Mm -hmm. You may not want to tell your neighbor or even your best friend, but it is, there's someone out there who you can talk to. You can get connected to care if you need it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think the most important thing is just to not cause harm to others, um, which 
I suppose it's easier said than done, depending on what's going on with you. But I don't want no, I don't want nobody to get hurt. So. Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741-741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast.